we're going to do communion right now. And um, I wanted to start with telling you that at home, I've been known to say and express the fact that I really like to pay bills. I really do. I know it's crazy. I know it's uh, probably a little bit stupid, but I really like to pay bills. In fact, I like to pay bills so much that in the office, I've even been known to pay my taxes 15 days early. So, yeah, that's a big one. So, <laughs> I am weird. I know. I know. Well, despite all of, the, all of that, um, I like it for several reasons. Number one, because it's a tangible project. It's something I can do, be done, and accomplish, and I'm excited about that. Um, it is a great way for me to serve my family by paying those bills. Um, and, yeah, it can be a real challenge. But who doesn't like a challenge? I've had lots of times, especially early on in my life, when I didn't have much of an income, and it was important that I made sure that I paid those bills and that I paid those bills correctly and as best as I could when I could. Um, but who doesn't like to come through a challenge and be victorious over those as well? Um, paying bills is a busy work that really means something. It's busy, it's not that hard, but yeah, if you do it right, it really means a lot. If you don't do it right, it could cause a lot of problems. And I said this one time, I'm really proud of this statement, but I really honestly, truly believe that paying bills is a celebration of life. The fact that I paid my bills today means I get to live for another year or another week or another month. Does that make sense? It's a celebration. I'm, I'm living, it costs money to do that, and therefore... Uh, I am excited that I can pay those bills, and I'm thankful for the church for also providing uh, that to me as well. But there's one bill that has gotten the best of me for a long time. I acquired this bill back when I was a uh, youngster, and it's a bill that I just can't get out from underneath. It's a bill uh, that really you could call a debt. It was something just through a series of mistakes and technically, it started with the first mistake, and it just continues to show up and show up and show up. And that is a mistake that we often call sin. And that's a bill that I can't pay. That's a bill that I can't do anything about. Because if I pay that bill, it is not a celebration of life. It is actually death. But what I needed and what I got was a benefactor. Somebody who was willing to step in somebody who's willing to enter into my life, who is uh, very gracious and kind and forgiving and patient and loving, direct, but also I just know that he loves me and he's trying to help me out, and he's very rich. <laughs> and that benefactor is Jesus. He has paid my debt, that debt that I couldn't handle myself, that debt that nothing that I could try to do would solve. He paid that. And until I found that friend, until I found him, I was underneath it, and there was nothing I could do to get out from it. But since that day, he has washed it clean. Like that snow that's right outside, white as snow. I don't have to worry about it anymore. That doesn't give me permission to go out and spend and spend and spend, but it frees me to know that he's got my back. It helps me to know that he cares that much for me. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 
having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This is why we take communion. Because this is a debt that we can't pay, but we can still celebrate life in it because through the blood of Jesus, through his, the breaking of his body, he paid that debt for us. So as we take communion, let's remember the love that Christ has given to us through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your love and for the actions of, the, of your life on earth and also the death on the cross. And it's been said a number of times, but it's just true. We know that you were not killed on the cross. You gave up your life. You surrendered it. You had the power to save others. You could have saved yourself, but you didn't. You decided to die for us by paying, and by doing so, paying our debt so that we can be free from our sin. Help us to live life in that freedom, to be free from that, to do the best we can to to change our heart and mind, but also rely on you for that power as well to get away from those things that bog us down. Thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's supposed to get above freezing today. Sounds uh, exciting to me. And, and although, it was, as somebody pointed out earlier, we're getting a winter storms night. So that, that's a good combination. Nice little break and then right back into it. And then I think it's going to rain all week long and wash all this snow into this nice sludge we get to deal with. Looking forward to that. I would like to welcome you guys in. If you are joining us on our online service, you might wonder where we're at, what we're doing. Normally, we live stream our 9.15. We had a little issue this morning, overnight sometime. We got here this morning, and our sound booth downstairs had water all over the board and uh, the computer. And so 
uh, we're, we're showing you our 8 o'clock service this morning online. So if you're wondering why it's a little different, that's why. Uh, if you all in the room see me looking at the camera a little bit more, that's why, because we've got guests with us this morning at 8 o'clock. But you get a taste of our 8 o'clock traditional service up here in our, our loft, our youth room. But we're glad you're here with us either way. We're in week three of this series called A Call to Cruciformity, working our way through the book of Philippians. And uh, today we're coming across uh, Philippians chapter 2, the first part of Philippians chapter 2 anyway, in what might be, I heard it said this week, one of the most talked about sections of Scripture in the entire New Testament. The reason it might be one of the most uh, talked about topics and, and por uh, portions of Scripture throughout the New Testament is it's the one that we probably need to hear the most. Because we have an epidemic in our society. We have an epidemic in our society that uh, passes from generation to generation. It affects men and women both. It affects the rich, the poor, the middle class, and everybody in between. It's, it's an epidemic that just kind of seeps its way down through everybody. Some of the symptoms of this are uh, instant gratification, the need for constant approval. In fact, we've seen kind of from psychologists that social media actually becomes addictive to people because when somebody sees a like on their post or a comment that agrees with them, endorphins actually kick up and that excitement comes and it actually becomes almost like a short little high that you would get from a drug. And, and we're fueled by this need, again, for just constantly having approval or that gratification. It, it's a self-focused lifestyle that can be described with a word called haughtiness. If you don't know what it means to be haughty, to be haughty means to feel arrogantly superior or disdainful towards others. Another word that we can use to describe this is the word hubris, where it's self-focused, self-elevation above everyone else and everything else. Not to say you don't care about others or even that you are necessarily just overtly an arrogant person, but you want to make sure that you are taken care of above all else. It's an epidemic that we see, whether that's in celebrities or, or just people that we might even come across at church or in our neighborhood or at work, wherever we may be, it's a focus on what I need, what I want, what's most important to me. But the good news is there's an antidote to this epidemic, and the antidote is humility. The antidote for this epidemic is humility. That's what Philippians 2 is, is going to focus on is this idea of how we can grasp and look at humility. Think about this for just a moment here. As a society, typically, that's who we're attracted to, people who are humble. Maybe that's uh, just somebody that we know. We kind of like to hear people who are humble as opposed to those who like to tell you all about themselves all the time. We've got people in our, our lives or our family, and when you're around them, you're pretty sure you're going to hear about how great they are. My dad always likes to use the phrase, I'd like to buy that person for what they're worth and sell them for what they think they're worth. <laughs> but we, we see this, right? You get this idea that somebody's just really good at telling you how valuable they are. But yet we're attracted to those who are humble. I don't know if you watched the, uh, the, the quarterback uh, docuseries on Netflix that came out last year. Patrick Mahomes was a part of it, but also Kirk Cousins was a part of it. Uh, quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. This guy cracks me up because he could just, if he came to church, you probably know who he is if he didn't watch football. The guy's making $40 million a year. He shops at JCPenney and Colts. You know, he buys his shirts there. In fact, there was this running meme joke last year that he was 
was uh, using Peter and Paul's couch by the Vikings. But he's just, uh, he wants to come home, spend time with his kids, read a book, pray with them, and go to bed. There's a humble spirit about it. He knows what he can do. He knows what, he, what he's able to do, but he's not out there shouting at everybody's faces like a lot of athletes might be. We're attracted to people like that, and we're repelled and pushed away by people who are all about themselves. We're repelled and pushed away by those who are very self-centered, unless, of course, they play for our team, and then we tolerate them until they go play for somebody else. That's typically how it works. But here's what you need to understand about humility. I think we're attracted to it because we know that's what Jesus was. And there's a promise that kind of is, is repeated throughout Scripture that is important for us to remember that God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud or he humbles the haughty or he humbles those who, who deal with hubris all the time. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, here's what we read. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a lot in those two verses right there. We're going to camp out on this for a few minutes and just kind of pick a few words out of this because this is, there's so much here that, that really we could just read this, this two-verse passage and be done for the day. This is what we're looking at from the words of Paul here. First off, he says, do nothing. Just start, start with those first couple of words right there. Do nothing from selfish focus. Do nothing from conceit. Think about this. There's not an area of your life that doesn't improve if you do it through the lens of humility. You, your, your marriages will be stronger and better. Your work <laughs> environments will be better. You'll be a better parent or grandparent or, or son or daughter if you're doing it through the lens of humility. You're a better neighbor and friend if you're humble. Everything, he says here, should be done through selfless ambition. That's the second part of it is talking about ambition. Now, notice there's a difference here. He's talking about specifically selfish ambition. Ambition itself is a good thing. We should have ambition. You should strive to do what, what God's put in front of you to do. God gave us all talents and passions for a reason. He gave us emotions for a reason. He gave us things that we, we enjoy doing. He gave us a specific will and path for our lives. And I think we owe it to God to do that to the best of our abilities. We owe it to God to want to get better at those things that we do. Ambition is not a bad thing. But what are you using that ambition for? What are you using those talents and gifts for? No, he says out of selfish ambition. That's the issue there. Jim Collins wrote a book several years ago called Good to Great. It's one of the, the better leadership books that I've been able to get a hold of. But in the book, he talks about ego. And he said, you're not going to find a leader that doesn't have some level of ego. We all do. The question is, can you check that ego to make sure everybody else is taken care of? Not just taken care of, but elevated. Can you utilize what you have so that you can help others? The reason for that is the next part. Paul says in verse 4, in humility, look to others. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is, is so interesting here. Because often we think to be humble means to put yourself down, to look less upon yourself. And that's partly true. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's just thinking of yourself less. It's focusing on others. You could define it like this. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's valuing others as greater than yourself. I think too often we look at humility as downplaying what we can do. 
And the problem is that becomes a false humility. That becomes this whole concept of, of, of somebody compliments you on what you did and, oh, it's no big deal. Kurt, you did a good job preaching today. Oh, it's nothing. You know, hey, you know what? You played a great game today. Well, I mean, I guess. I mean, it wasn't that great. No, we know what we can do. Be honest with yourself. If you work in sales and you put the best numbers up in your company, you're the best salesman of the company. If, if you compete in some sort of competition and you win that competition, you're the best in that competition. That, that, that comes with the territory, right? No, you understand and recognize where you're at. That's honesty with yourself. Humility isn't, it, it's not ignoring your talents and your values. It's using those and leveraging those to make the lives of those around you better. I know people who, who are, are wealthy individuals. Maybe they, they're a physician. Maybe they're, they're, they're an attorney. Maybe they're a great salesman. Maybe they've just been born into money. They have it. And they don't pretend like they don't, but they also don't let it define who they are. Instead, they utilize it. And any prestige or, or power that their name might carry, they utilize that to help others. Got a friend from back home, uh, actually a family of friends that are, that are doctors. The one who's not a doctor is a, uh, uh, owns the family pharmacy. Um, and they utilize that. Everybody knows their name. They utilize that to just pour into the community around them. Got another friend who's a dentist from back home. Does very, very well. He utilizes that to pour into the school system, to pour into the youth sports uh, organizations. His kids are grown up now but he knows the value that it can come from helping other people out. I had a friend in, in Arizona that was a, a campus pastor at one of the campuses of the, the church we were a part of. He was a multimillionaire before he ever got into ministry, but his heart never changed from when he was just a poor college student. And he utilizes that to reach people out, never even listen to me, utilizes that to reach people that have influence. What can you do with that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply leveraging what you have and not making it all about yourself. Recognizing how God has blessed you through that and how you can use that to bless others in his name. As we talk about humility today, what I want to do is just ask three different questions and kind of ponder on these and think about these because I think that will help us understand what humility is all about and what we can do with Humility. The first is simply this. What does humility look like? What's it look like? Kind of just described a minute ago what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like just constant self-denial and I'm just really not that good at No, it's not bad. It's saying, what is it? Go back to your text. Verse 5 of Philippians 2. Paul says, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, that right there spells it out. You've got Jesus. John chapter 1 says, is and was God. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And a few verses later, the Word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. Just imagine this for a second here. Just, just, just pretend for a second that you're, you're where Jesus was. You are God and you're with God. And you're in this perfect place to be. And you say, you know what? 
I'm willing to go be a human now. And I'm going to go be a human with all the human emotions and all the human pain and all the human obstacles and mood swings that come with that. That's what he did. He put that on and he became like one of us so that he could reach us because he loved us that much. That is what humility ultimately looks like. I've told you guys this before. I'm one of these that if I get a taste of something that is better than what I have, I have a hard time sticking with what I have. That's just, I'm trying to overcome that, but that's something that I, Jennifer and I this week, we're we're looking at stuff, and she goes, do you want to go look at this nice one? I said, nope, I don't, because I know as soon as I look at something nice, I'm not going to want to look back over here. Suddenly, this isn't good enough for me. Uh, I I told you the story one time. I got to sit in a first-class seat on a plane one time. Uh, My father-in-law worked for American Airlines. We flew standby, and they would fill those seats first, and when you fly out of Joplin, Missouri, this may shock you, there's not a lot of people that fly on those planes. Joplin, Missouri's airport is big enough to have, I think, four gates all right beside each other. Uh, And so my mother-in-law and I were flying from our hometown in Oklahoma back out to Oregon when we lived there. So we got a first-class seat on a 50-minute flight from there to Dallas. I was excited. It's like, first class, you get a meal, you get two drinks, you know, not just the one can of Coke, you get two of them. We weren't in the air long enough for any of that to happen. So then I get on my next flight from Dallas to L.A., and I'm on the back of the plane between two guys that were both over 300 pounds. Like this, trying to watch my show. I'm like, I am not a peasant. Why am I back here with the peasants? I sit first class. It's like suddenly, you know, suddenly, you know, you're too good for that. Got given club seats at a baseball game one time. Those are nice. Next time we're back out in the cheap seats. I'm like, it's hot out here. Why I I don't belong out here. You taste something good, it's hard to go back. Jesus left heaven for you. He left heaven for me. He came to earth for us. Again, look what it says in verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The NIV, this, where it says emptied himself, the NIV translates this as he made himself nothing. The Greek word that's used here is the word kanao. Kanao translates literally as to empty or to deprive of anything. And kanao was used to describe somebody who had gone bankrupt, who had lost everything they had and they suddenly were worth nothing. Not just lose your money, you're worth nothing now too. Kanao was also used to describe captives, specifically prisoners of war, who were stripped of their identity, stripped of their nationality. They had nothing, they were nothing. That was what it meant to be kanao. And Paul is talking about the creator of the universe saying he is kanao. He is nothing. He is morally, totally, completely empty. And suddenly, that changes from being an insult to being an attribute. Jesus shows us what humility is. And from this point forward, suddenly, because Jesus did this, it's a good thing for us to do it too. Because you think about how, how we define certain people. We might call them a civil servant, somebody who serves the community, serves the area. This, that's a term that would never have been used in this culture in Rome. If you were in a position of power, you had servants. You didn't dare serve anybody else. That was beneath you. That was below you. And Jesus models it for us. And suddenly, again, we are attracted to people who were humble because Jesus was humble. 
But as we have gotten further away from Jesus as, as a culture, further away from the gospel as a culture, what we see instead is this kind of return to self-centeredness, this return to arrogance, this return to it's all about me and what I want and what I need. And we're starting to see this even in Christian circles, even among pastors, even among people who are worshiping God regularly. And my question is why? Why do we see this? I had a, a mentor of mine, one of my former professors and pastors, said this, kind of stuck with me. He said, in my opinion, I think the reason we're seeing less humility in Christian circles is that deep down we're afraid maybe God's promise isn't really true. When he tells us that he'll exalt the humble and humble the proud. Not that we don't trust God. But you know how it is. Sometimes when something's not directly in your control, no matter who it is, you have just a little bit less time trusting it's going to work out. Jennifer does this with me. I do this with her sometimes. If the other one is doing it, there's just this little bit of doubt in our mind she's not going to do it right. She tells me this all the time, usually when I'm loading the dishwasher. That's not how I would have done it. I just caught like four people getting an elbow or a side eye when I said that. I'm sorry if I've caused any problems. Sorry for any conversation you're going to have on the way home here in a little bit. But she'll usually say, well, that's not how I would have done that. I say, well, you're not the one doing it. I think that maybe, just maybe, that faith that we talk about, that believing in something without all the evidence, believing in something that we can't possibly know is actually true, Sometimes that creeps in because we just don't have all the evidence. And maybe we see people who are proud and arrogant get, getting elevated while we don't. Or maybe it's that situation where you think, well, I should have got that job or I could have had that. I, I could have qualified. I'm better than this person. And maybe, just maybe we think God's not going to follow through on that promise. I think that sometimes we think if I do this humble thing, who's going to notice so let's be honest, even those who don't like the spotlight like to be thanked, like to be recognized. We, we've got so many people who serve in the church here, and they serve in places that aren't seen outside of maybe the staff. We've got like our building team. They specifically schedule days to come in when there's nothing else going on here. Now that's not so they can just hide in the shadows, it's because when they're doing their projects, it's going to be loud and noisy and all that, and they don't want to disrupt anything. So when we make our schedule for the year back in November, they wait till it's over, then they take all the open days. Or our grounds team kind of does the same thing. We've got our helping hands team that comes in on Fridays and just into the office to fold and stuff bulletins. We've got our service team that mostly works behind the scenes as well, too. These are men and women who serve the church and serve God, not ever expecting anybody to notice. God notices. Sometimes on staff, we don't even notice. Sometimes they're the teams that we notice only when they haven't been there doing the job. But God notices. God sees that. You may say, if I do this humble thing, who's going to notice me? God sees. And that's more important than me seeing. That's more important than anybody else seeing. Second question we've got to ask. If we ask what does humility look like, the second question is what does it accomplish? What does humility accomplish? We can talk all about it, but unless we talk about what good comes out of it, it doesn't really matter, right? Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Talking about Jesus here. The name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What's this mean here? When you are humbled, you will be exalted. It may not look like what you want it to. It may not be this pedestal and this great you know, chorus of applause and cheers and pats on the back and thank yous. It may not be that. But God sees and God will exalt you with this. Jesus specifically was exalted and made Lord of all creation. And it says every knee will bow. The rich, the poor, men, women, red, yellow, black, and white, everybody who's precious in his sight, we're all going to bow before him. But you, you get exalted in the eyes of God. That's far better than a thank you I can give you. That's far better than an appreciation lunch I could, I could throw for you. No, God sees this, and more specifically, God sees your heart and the transformation that's taking place. We talk a lot about how can you become more like Jesus. This is a big, big way. But it's also worth remembering the opposite of all of this. The opposite of humility is, is pride and self-focus. And the Bible has a lot to say about a, a prideful lifestyle or about a, about a haughty lifestyle. It's not just Paul. All throughout Scripture, we see this repeated. We see it in Solomon in, in Proverbs 16. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or we see this from the words of Jesus in Matthew 23. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We see this in, in the words of James, the brother of Jesus. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And in the words of Peter, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You know how Peter knows this? Because Peter was humbled. Peter was a pride, a prideful, proud, boastful person. The one who was willing to go fight for God. <laughs> Let me fight for you, God of all creation. Let me throw up my hands and make a statement for you who spoke the world into existence. That was Peter. But Peter was humbled by his own boastfulness. And we see the resurrected Jesus transform Peter. This Peter who suddenly went from being so scared he wouldn't even admit to knowing who Jesus was to being willing to go to the death for him. He doesn't just say here, that God doesn't like the proud. No, he says he puts himself in direct opposition to the proud. And he lifts up the humble and shows favor to the humble. So our final question is how do I accomplish humility? Let me just say that humility, it probably goes without saying, is something that you should embody without having to tell people. I had a friend, he's another pastor, we used to, used to jokingly brag about which one of us was the most humble. Well, I'm so humble I did this, and I didn't even tell anybody. And I want to make sure you know this, so you can tell people that I did this so they see how humble I was. You know, we joked about this. But how do we accomplish this? This is kind of your takeaway for today. It's a three-part takeaway. How do you accomplish it? Here's the first thing. Set with the lowly. Set with the lowly. You, you all know somebody Maybe it's, it's somebody who uh, just is kind of a loner. Not a lot of friends or family around them. Maybe it's somebody who has recently lost everything or gone through a hardship. 
Maybe it's somebody like James says in James 1, it's the widows and the orphans. Who is that for you? Got a, a phone call last night from my dad about 10.30 that my grandma had passed away. I got to go see her on Thanksgiving. She didn't know who we were. Dementia has taken over her life. And so it was kind of a blessing to get the phone call, kind of the relief to get the phone call. We knew from the last week that it was just a matter of time. But um, when I was out there visiting her on Thanksgiving, again, she didn't know who I was. But we looked up, and we saw across the room somebody from our home-based church there in, in Miami, just there visiting, visiting the people in this facility who didn't have anybody else to visit them. And that, that sticks with you when you see that. When you see those people who are willing to just give their time, maybe the most precious commodity we have is our time, and it gives that to just go spend time with the lowly. We used to challenge our, our students when I taught, try to find that kid that nobody wants to be their friend. I tell Elsie this all the time. She'll say, well, these kids don't want to be my friend. I said, well, maybe find somebody else. You can be theirs. Because maybe there's somebody else who feels like you do. Go be their friend. Go spend time with them. Because maybe they've got stuff going on in your life, or their life that you don't know about, nobody else knows about. And they just need somebody there. Sit with the lowly. The second thing we can do, take a back seat. This is hard for us. This is very hard for us, even if you're humble. I, I, I feel like I've got a decent amount of patience in life. Um, there are two places in life where I do not have patience. One is driving down 435, and the other is at Walmart. I have no patience. And just so you guys are aware, sometimes I question my calling into ministry when I'm at Walmart. Like, God, you really want me to save these people. You're going to have to help me. <laughs> Give me a little boost. Give me through this. But what do, we, what do we like when we're there? We like things to go quick, in the store, out of the store, not people getting in our way, quick checkout line, all that. Maybe taking a back seat is letting somebody go in front of you. Maybe taking a back seat is sticking around for a few extra minutes to help so that everybody can get out of there a little bit quicker. I, I, we joked about this last week when we were downstairs. It was so cold. We just had the two services, and we joked with one of our, our ministry team leaders because he went out and helped open doors for like three minutes and then came back inside. You know, poor Myron was out there shivering, and he made it through the whole, whole time. But we, we joked about Bob that he has the gift of wandering around, leading by wandering around. And too often, I think we see this. People do this. They get distracted. But often, too... We're checking in on people. We're pouring into people as we do this. When you ask your question, how can I take a back seat? What is it that you normally want to get done and get out of there quickly? But you'd be willing to say, you know what, maybe, maybe if I help somebody else out, maybe if I gave up my turn, maybe if I let this other person go in front of me, what is it? Your third thing, if you want to start to, to, to accomplish humility, Serve beneath your status. I know in this room specifically, there's a lot of you who have served for years. And maybe you've done this. But serve beneath your status. When we were in Arizona, uh, I was, always kept my eye. Of course, this was, we were there to go through this pastoral residency. They were teaching us a lot about uh, serving through humility. But they told us, pay attention to the people who do the jobs that you don't necessarily want to do. 
And I noticed when we were at Scottsdale specifically, there was a guy who would come by, and, and here's an example. He would just pick up a little piece of trash off the floor. And he would do that all the time. He wouldn't hesitate to go in the bathroom and clean those up if we needed to. I found out later that guy was worth $20 million. He's somebody who probably pays people to do that at his house. But at the church, he was willing to do that. We had people who would sit in with, with babies. We had people who would serve in our special needs ministry there. There were people who were very well-to-do people. They had no issue serving however they could serve. I've seen people at this church in, in the same way, serving just because there's a need, not necessarily because it's something that they really desire to do, but knowing it's something that needs to be done. I, I, I watched this, and, and it just... It shows me something. Don Wilson was the founding pastor of that church in Arizona. Grew the church from a handful of people in his living room to today, it runs almost 40,000 every weekend. If you want to look at somebody who is a model of how to build a great church, that's who you start with. And he's a name that most people have never heard of because that was all he cared about was that one church. But he told us, if you want to be like Jesus, you be the example and not the exception. You just do a job that needs to be done. Don't expect somebody else to do it. And that sticks because that, that's what humility looks like. Don certainly knew what he could do. You don't grow a church that size just because you're ho-hum about everything. He's absolutely a high D driven, a type one type of leader. Grab the bull by the horns, let's charge the hill, all those cliches. But he showed us humility. Go back and look at this one more time. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. I said earlier <clears throat> that this was the most talked about text in the New Testament. What if this was the most lived out text in the New Testament? What if this was the most exemplified text in the Bible? How would our church look different? How would the church look different? How would your life look different if you lived this out more than anything else? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for the example that you show us, the example that you give us, we are so thankful for the humble, the humble actions of Jesus, who though he is God and was with you, came down for me and came down for everybody here to be with us. God, we're so thankful for him. We're thankful for his blood, as Mark said earlier, that washes us white as snow. God, we're thankful for that redemption that restoration that he brings. Father, I pray as we go about our lives and shine your light to everyone that we can, Lord, we would do so humbly. We would do so to glorify you, not worrying about any, anything that may come back our way. We would simply do it because that's what you did for us. We're so thankful for your son. We pray in his name. Amen.